0: good evening if you're a guest we welcome you it is such a blessing to be together tonight it's always good to be able to worship god and sunday nights are just a wonderful special time in order to be able to do that if you would be opening your Bibles to Jeremiah, the 28th chapter, we'll look in just a few moments at some verses, especially um, out of 28 and then even into 29, the Bible that's in your pew, we won't have the screen tonight, but in on 694, I believe it is, 694, in the Bible that's in your pew, if you want to follow along there. And uh, I too tried to print from the printer this afternoon, and um, so... I preached from LegalPath for a long time when I first started preaching, so I feel kind of right at home here. Uh, But we are thankful for a lot of things, and one thing is this coming Wednesday evening, we are really thankful that uh, some of our deacons will be leading us in a time of of worship together, especially as we think about gratitude and thanksgiving. And uh, we appreciate all of our deacons, and we look forward to hearing from a few of them as as they lead us in worship. And again, the reminder that all classes uh, will be meeting in here together on Wednesday night. Also, a reminder, deacons and ministry leaders, be sure and get in the scheduled uh, dates that you want to put on next year's calendar including reservations of facility and vehicles and if you could do that by tonight or tomorrow that would really help us as we plan uh, the calendar for next year also we are thankful that God is good to us so that we have the opportunity to give because it's more blessed to give than to receive and so because of your gifts and then uh, the uh, a little bit of additional added to that ten thousand dollars is going to be sent To the relief efforts as a result of the Hurricane Sandy up to the Northeast, and we're thankful for the opportunity to help those individuals, and um, and we ought to continue to pray for them, and then keep our eyes open for ways that we can constantly be about helping others to give God the glory. Discontentment has always been a problem. As a matter of fact, even though the Bible never clearly just outlines exactly how Satan fell, it appears that Satan's fall from heaven was because of discontentment. He wasn't satisfied with what God had given him when God created him. He wasn't satisfied with the role and the place that God gave him. And it appears to be discontentment that he wanted to be equal or greater than God, that not only was he cast out of heaven, but from Revelation it gives, and we know there's a lot of symbolism, so we don't know if this is literal or symbolic, but a third of his angels came out with him. It's also interesting that we can go back to the first sin that we have recorded in the scriptures, the struggle there in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve to do right. And do you remember a part of that temptation was based on discontentment. It was the idea of Satan showing the very process of you could reach out for this fruit and you could eat this fruit and it would make you wise like God. You don't want to stay where God has created you to be You want something more. You want to go above and beyond, not above and beyond in the way that God has created you, outside of the realm that God has created you. God's trying to hold you back. God is telling you no because He doesn't want you to experience all that you can experience. And so it literally was a discontentment with God. When we think of some expressions... In quotes, I offer them to you not because they're more serious than what we've just talked about, but to stir your mind as we begin this lesson of how serious is contentment versus discontentment. I think about Benjamin Franklin telling us that discontentment makes a rich man poor and contentment makes a poor man rich. Another preacher said that discontentment is literally the cancer of the soul. Listen, I want you to see that as we study this tonight, we could study from scriptures a lot of examples and teaching on discontentment, and I hope that we learn from those tonight, but I hope that especially what we walk out of here with is that broader responsibility that says, I don't want to be one of those people. We are full of a world around us that's discontent. I want to be content with whom God has created me to be. I want to be content with the path that God has given me to travel. God has a plan for us. God has a way in which he has designed for us to live. I want to be content with what God has designed. I don't want to believe the lies of Satan. Satan will lie to us to try to get us to believe anything so that we will step out of the area of contentment that God has placed us and into a pursuit of a host of things because of discontentment and none of them are real. None of them are lasting. When we close this lesson in a few minutes, the last thing we'll read is about being a dreamer and not in the good sense, being a dreamer in the negative sense that the scripture is going to use it in a passage we're we're reading. And we won't heavily develop that because I just want you to think back to this. That's what we're talking about. Let's not be dreamers that follow deceit, that, that just reach for the pies in the skies that Satan puts there that don't exist. But let's say, I want to be content with God. I want to walk with Him. I want to be who he has designed for me to be. How does this unfold? Look with me, if you will, at an example in the scriptures. We'll use Jeremiah 28 to give us a little background to set up why the letter, as it's called in Jeremiah 29, was written. Think about the time that Jerusalem has had its first wave of of being somewhat conquered. And the first wave of captives are being taken back to Babylon. And that first wave is there and false prophets come in. Obviously, they're not telling the truth. And they have a message for God's people. If you had been taken into exile, what message would you want to hear? Isn't it interesting how there have always been individuals that will tell men and women lies? I hope that you're aware of that and that you believe that. You need to rest assured that there will be individuals that will tell you lies about what God says and about what God has done and about what God will do. And you rest assured on the truth. And so here's an example. In the 28th chapter, we read in verse 1 about a man named Hananiah. And then we read in verse 2, Thus speaks the Lord. This is what he said. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. We're in Jeremiah 28, verse 2, about 694 in your Pew Bible. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And he develops us a little more, but this isn't really our text tonight, so we'll just pause there for a moment. But can you imagine how excited that would make the people? What? In, in two years, we're gonna be back. And, and Jerusalem, and the things that have been stolen out of the temple, God's going to bring those back. We're going to be at home and everything's going to be made right again. We're so excited about this. Wait a minute. Was that a dreamer or was that the truth? Well, what we find out when we go to verse 10, then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and he broke it. And, Hannah and I spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord. Remember we studied last week about a prophet that said some things that wasn't right, but at least he didn't say thus says the Lord. So this prophet is straight out deceptive. The Lord hasn't told him this message, but he's gonna stand up before the people and he's gonna say, thus says the Lord. Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon from the neck of all the nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way Remember, Jeremiah was wearing that yoke as a way to teach the people to say, this is what is going to happen. We've left God and we're bearing the yoke here uh, in captivity. And so now notice the word of God in verse 12 comes to Jeremiah and he tells him uh, to say these things. And so this is what God tells Jeremiah to say in 13. Go and tell Hananiah saying, thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood but you have made in their place yokes of iron. And so he talks about the fact that they're going to serve and live in Babylon. And, and then in 15, Jeremiah said to Hananiah, hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, and he tells him in the next two verses, you're going to die by the end of the year. And really, if you look at the month of verse 1 and the month in verse 17, he dies within a two-month period of time. Now, we see what happened to Hananiah, but think about these people that he's lied to. What's Jeremiah going to do back here to get word to them over there, hey, we need to address this. You're getting your hopes up. And you're becoming very discontent with staying here because in your mind, you think that the Lord has said, we're going back home in two years. And so he writes a letter urging them to find a righteous contentment where they are. And I'd like for you to notice... He addresses in verse one of 29, now these are the words the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive to Jerusalem. Let's skip down now, and you see that letter in verse three is referred to, and this is what it begins saying in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, and we're gonna really point this out in just a moment, but underline in your mind at least this phrase. God says, who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then he tells them, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and begat sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city. Now notice this again. Where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you. Nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to dream. Isn't it interesting and powerful that the Lord says in verse 4 and verse 7 very clearly, He says to them, I want you to remember, I am the one who caused you to be here. What is God doing? He is reminding them that he is the sovereign God, that he is powerful, that he is the one that can move kings, he can move nations, he can move nations of people or even remnants of people. In other words, he's saying to them, listen, it wasn't just by chance that Babylon came over there and come into your lives and begin destroying some of you and taking of a remnant of people over. Don't blame Babylon on that, that's me. That was a part of my plan to punish you as you grew evil. God deals with mankind under the law of sowing and reaping. And God deals with mankind under the law in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, that he promises that if he loves you, he will punish you like a loving father would punish his children upon this earth. And so here he's saying, that's not just babbling, acting all cold. But think what that means. Oh, we're here and, and we're in captivity where's God God's not in control anymore we're God's people and now evil people are winning out and he's saying evil people aren't winning out I'm the one who's created this movement I'm the one who's doing this I'm still God think about again to Nebuchadnezzar turn over just a few pages in your Bible to Daniel the fourth chapter you remember when he was becoming so haughty and Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel, the fourth chapter, we'll just read just verse 32 just to see how clearly Daniel spoke of the power of God. In Daniel 4 and 32, it's 784 in the Bible, the senior pew, 784. So this is Daniel 4 and 32. Now as we read this, think how Daniel is saying clearly how powerful God is in moving Nations and kings. So he says here about kings. And they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know, what are you gonna know? That the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Listen, God is trying to help them understand you need to be content with where you are because I'm still in control. I'm the one who put you here and I'm the one who will bring you back. I'm in control here. I'm sovereign. Are you content with that? Well, I I really wanted to go back in two years like the false prophet said. You're not going back in two years. You guys are going to spend the full 70 years here. What are you going to do for the next 70 years? What do you do when things don't work out exactly like you want? Do you become discontent and stop living? Do you become discontent and start carrying out the signs of discontentment? Do you know if you're discontent? How do you know if someone is discontent? I read a list of five things the other day that they say, this is what people generally do when they're discontent. They become envious. They look at other people that that are doing something good or something good has happened to them and they just hate that that good has happened to them. They're also overly ambitious. They, just, they, they believe that they have to win at any cost. They also are people that become critical. Do you feel negative about most things that are said or done? They also take on a complaining spirit. Do you blame others? Do you make excuses for everything? And then finally, they also carry out outbursts of anger. I'm not suggesting to you those are the only five things or characteristics that people have when they're discontent. But what do you do? Are you a content person even when things are not exactly the way you would choose for them to be? If you would have been taken over into captivity, and especially if you would have been one of the few righteous Jews, and you're suffering the punishment for all of these wicked ones, would you have been one that's saying, I'm not ever going to be happy until I go back? Or would you be listening to God and God saying, I just want to remind you, I'm in control here. And are you willing to say, God, I recognize you're in control. And as long as you're in control, I'm all right. But what about this, how it looks for you and I today? Because we're not taken literally into a land of captivity into Babylon. But what about in Luke, the 14th chapter? I'd like to share with you just two thoughts about the way sometimes we make plans and, and how do we show whether we're content or whether we're not? And how does that fall into us making plans? If we make plans or we're saying we're not content with where we are today? You remember there were three times that the Lord said, you cannot be my disciple in Luke, the 14th chapter. In Luke the 14th chapter, he said that we would have to love him more than we love our father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters in verse 26. This is page 924 in the Pew Bibles. And then in Luke 14 and 27 he says whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives this illustration. And notice what he says in 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not set down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it. Lest After he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. And they say, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. From there, it surely doesn't sound like that it's wrong to make plans, does it? He's saying, as a matter of fact, if you're going to make plans, you ought to really think ahead and think, now, is this something that that I'm ready to complete? Is this something I have the resources to carry to the very end? Let's put that on hold for just a moment and let's lay that thought down beside James, the fourth chapter. Go to James, the fourth chapter, page 1074, the Bible in your pew, 1074. James 4, and we're going to read beginning at verse 13, and then we're going to try to put these two thoughts together and see where where godly contentment would lie in day-to-day living. In James 4 and 13, he says, Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas, you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we should live and do this or that. But now, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil what plans are righteous and what plans are evil making plans without considering the will of God is wicked making plans as if you know how long you're going to live in the future is foolish And so here, the idea, it seems to be implied that there's two things in this one passage in John 4. One was they were making plans without God, but then they seem to be making plans as if to say, oh, I know I'm going to be there a year. We don't know if we're going to be here by midnight. Our life is a vapor. You've seen water on top of the stove bowl and, and you've seen a vapor come off and, and usually the vapor is, is dissipated by the time it reaches the ceiling. It's only there for a short time and advantage. Where'd it go? I don't know. It's almost as if it wasn't there. You want to think of something depressing? A few decades after you and I pass away, for the most part, if we live a long life, not many people will even know that we've been here unless we're a part of something greater than ourselves, and then our life has purpose. You can be a part of a kingdom that contributes to good, that goes to an eternity, or your life can be a vapor and mean little on this earth and nothing after it's gone. What plans will you make? Will you make plans that will recognize how brief life is And make sure that you live those plans under the will of God. Those are the kind of plans that we can say, I want to think through this. I want God's will to be done. If I'm going to build this tower, is it within God's will? Can I start it, the foundation, and can I carry it to the end? You see, those are wonderful plans that offer contentment because they they live within the framework of saying, God is sovereign. He rules and he reigns. I don't want to step out from underneath his will. But let's go back to our text there in Jeremiah, the 29th chapter. And I'd like for you to see one more thing as we just start moving this toward a close. Jeremiah 29, you see there in verse 4, he reminds them that he's the one that carried them there. And so now he's going to say, now keep in mind, their hopes is that we're moving back in two years. And he's telling them, you're not moving back in two years, so here's a better solution. Verse 5, go ahead and build a house there. What? We don't need to build a house here. We're not staying here long. Trust me. God's saying, trust me, you need to build a house here. And you need to go ahead and plant a garden. Well, I I hope I won't even be here to harvest the garden. God says, plant the garden. Go ahead and, and take a wife. And when you have children... Go ahead and encourage your children to grow up and and help them find spouses also. You get ready to settle down here a while. What is his plea? His plea here is for them to find contentment where they are. In other words, point number one, I'm a sovereign God and I've placed you right here. Are you willing to be content here? Okay, yes, Lord, we will. Okay, that means be content here. Be content where I've placed you. Well, we'd really like to go back. No, let's not talk about going back to Jerusalem right now. Let's talk about you build a house here. You find a family here. You grow a garden and take care of yourselves here. Listen, it may sound cute the way it said, but I promise you that's not what I'm trying to impress upon you. God doesn't care what you do with the million dollars that he might give you one day. He doesn't care. God wants to know what you'll do with the dollars he gave you last week. God wants to know what you'll do here. Not, well, once I get back to Jerusalem, he doesn't want to know what you're going to do back in Jerusalem. Matthew, the 25th chapter. Five-talent man, two-talent man, and one-talent man. God didn't want to know what the two-talent man would do if he was a five-talent man. God didn't want to know what the one-talent man would do if he were a two-talent man or a five-talent man. God wanted to know what's the one-talent man gonna do where I've placed you. What's the two-talent man gonna do where I've placed you? What is the five-talent man gonna do where I've placed you? I beg you tonight to quit looking around and making excuses about, well, once I get out of high school, this is what I'm going to do. God doesn't want to know if, if your idea is, I'm not going to be faithful now. I'm not going to be fully committed now. But when I move back to Jerusalem, when I get out of high school, I'll be faithful. God doesn't want to know. In that circumstance, God doesn't want to know what you have in your mind about after high school. You're in college and you say, it's so hard to be faithful in college, but i tell you what, when I get back to Jerusalem and I get out of college, I'll be faithful. I assure you, God doesn't wanna know about your plans after college. He wants to know right now what are you going to be. And we can't say, well, once I get married, or once I have kids, or once my kids leave home, or once I retire, once we get that next promotion, once I get a better job, once I get out of this, this, this influence that I'm at right now with these friends or with this workplace, God wants to know what we will do, where he has placed us now. It's kind of the same thing as the what if game. What if I'm not where God has placed me now? It doesn't matter. That's called discontentment. To be able to humbly say, God, I trust that you're sovereign. You're powerful and I'm not where I am by accident. And so where you've placed me, I will serve you today. I will give you my life and I will be committed and content with who you have made me today. Now, does that mean we never make plans? Oh, no. But we make the plans by God's will. Not making excuses for today, but looking to God's will. And so we close just again with that reminder that I've already mentioned to you once. See there in verse eight of Jeremiah 29? They had been listening to false teachers. They'd been listening to diviners. And so in Jeremiah 29 and eight, he brings that out. Do not let your prophets, talking about those false prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. What he's doing is he's telling them, stop living in a deceptive dream world and live in the reality of who your God is and where he has placed you. I just want to say that again. Stop living in your dream world and live in the reality of who your God is and where he has placed you and in that, find contentment. If you would, I'd like to close this lesson by reading a powerful New Testament passage on this topic. be turning to Philippians 4. It's page 1044. I'll read this and just make a couple of comments on the way and the lesson is yours. 1044, it's Philippians, the fourth chapter. Probably one of the most powerful New Testament passages on this topic. Look at verse 11 of Philippians 4. Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, that's what it takes. We're gonna have to learn it. None of us are gonna do this naturally. I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. Hear what Paul's saying? Wherever God has placed me, I didn't, he's saying I had to learn this, but I've learned to be content where he's placed me. Well, Paul, what do you have in mind? He says things like this. I know how to be a base, that's to live humbly. And I know how to abound. That's prosperity. I know how to live with a little. I know how to live with a lot. Everywhere and in all things, again, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. How'd you do that, Paul? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want to learn that kind of contentment. I want to learn a contentment that says, God, if you give me a lot, I won't leave you. And God, if you give me a little, I won't leave you. If I'm very comfortable, I won't leave you, God. And if I'm suffering need, I won't leave you. Well, how are we going to do that? The only way is through Christ. I can do all things. I can face all things with contentment through Christ. And that's the setting for verse 13. Tonight. Let's leave here with a real commitment and a real zeal that says, I want to find that kind of contentment. I want to always know who God is and know where he's placed me and serve him contently there. If we can help you any way this evening, find that contentment that is only found through Jesus Christ. Whatever we could do, we're willing to help you. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ as a believer that's willing to repent from sins and confess before man, we would love to assist you with that. If, if you have been a Christian and, and you've allowed discontentment to pull you away and tonight you look within your life and you look within your heart and you realize you've been thinking a lot about Jerusalem when God is saying a lot about, I want to use you here. However we can help you, however we can encourage you, but let's all leave here godly. Godly and content, not because of our own power, but through Christ, we can accomplish that.